Welcome to Coach Life 2.0, the podcast that offers a behind-the-scenes look at life as a coach. Through the personal stories and first-hand accounts of experienced coaches, this podcast offers valuable tips and tricks for embracing your own coaching journey and learning how to lead yourself and others more authentically. This week's episode features Lisa Haley, a Canadian ice hockey coach, wife, and mother. Lisa is in her 23rd season as a head coach in U Sports Women's Hockey, tying her for the longest tenure in the history of the league. Lisa spent her first 14 seasons at St. Mary's University in Nova Scotia, before taking the head coaching position at Ryerson University in Toronto, where she is currently in her 10th season behind the bench. Lisa also has extensive experience with Hockey Canada, having served as a head coach at both the U18 and U22 level. She has also served as an assistant coach with the senior women's national team, with whom she captured a gold medal in 2014 at the Sochi Olympics. Lisa is also currently serving as the head coach of Hungary's national women's hockey team and as an assistant coach with the Toronto Six of the NWHL. All right. Hello, coach, and welcome. Uh, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you very much, MJ. Really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, as am I. So uh, we'll just get right into it here. Why coaching? Oh, gosh. Uh, I think it's the thrill of the competition, to be honest. I think everyone's goal in life and their professional life is to have a job that doesn't feel like work. And I know for me with coaching, I, I, I found out right away how much I love the thrill of whether it's helping somebody achieve something or, or even more meaningful, I think, is coming together as a team and that whole experience and journey and accomplishing a common goal and just how, how addictive that feeling is and, and how motivating it is to try to, to try to get to that finish line that, that everyone's chasing. So it doesn't feel like work. It feels like uh, I'm, I just get a chance to live my passion every day. So um, it isn't even a decision. It's, uh, you know, I almost feel like it's just, it's a way of life for those of us that choose this profession. That's awesome. And I mean, personally, I couldn't agree more having an opportunity to work with you for four seasons. And uh, that definitely shone through. It's most days, it didn't feel like we were going to work, but every day brought its own unique challenges. And it was really cool to undertake that together. Uh, And I know for you personally, it was kind of like you came home from school, and you got right into the profession of coaching. Could you could you share a little bit about how you got into it? Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting how how things evolve. And when I was a teenager, you know, I, I loved the game. I, you know, I, I loved competitive sports in general, but definitely hockey was, was a thrill for me. And, but, you know, I was, I was a female and I didn't have role models and I just didn't even think that coaching was a, a profession that a female could pursue. And, but I knew I loved sports and I knew I loved hockey. And my mindset was how do I stay in this world in some way? And, you know, so when it came time to make a decision on what to pursue in university, I chose athletic therapy as an occupation, thinking that this was my way in to be at a professional level and still involved with sports in some way. And so shamefully, never even thought that coaching could be a profession. And when I say shamefully, I think we all bear the brunt of that, that it just wasn't a reality for those of us growing up back in the in the 90s. Um, I think things have definitely evolved and changed, and it's it's neat to see that there's lots of um, females seeing themselves now that there are some role models that they can be professional hockey players and professional coaches and so on. But for me, at that point in time, I was just looking at trying to find a way to keep my foot in the door in, in the in the world of sports, and I started out uh, as an athletic therapist. And typically, in that type of profession, you are in a sports setting and. When I graduated from university, I got my first job at back in Nova Scotia where I lived, and I was an athletic therapist with um, St. Mary's University. And I was a year into that career when our athletic director approached me about volunteering to coach uh, the women's hockey team, which was at the club level at the time, so no budget, no salary, no league, but... Um, at that time, CIAU, which has since been called CIS, which is now called U Sports, had just declared women's hockey as a national championship sport. And my athletic director was very forward thinking and wanting St. Mary's University to be 
at the front edge of it in, in Atlantic Canada. And he knew my background in playing at that level and approached me to volunteer to coach the team. And I would say all it took was the first practice and I was hooked. And I knew that this is something that I was, uh, I was meant to do. And away I went. I, over the next period of about four or five years, I transitioned from being a full-time athletic therapist into being a full-time university coach. And it's been 22 years and uh, I've enjoyed every moment. That's amazing. And it's, it's very true. You know, I don't think people take the time to, to realize that the role models weren't necessarily in place back in the day. And you look at how much it's changed too. I mean, even for myself, I remember watching um, the Olympics. Right. Really the Olympics was the stage where I know, I think for all of us, we started seeing females in those types of positions. The first Olympics for women's hockey was 1998 and Shanna Miller was the head coach of the Canadian team then. So um, it's ironic how things have gone with Hockey Canada and that we had female head coaches for a long time and then we had uh, males and now the last Olympics in 2018, we had a female again. So interesting involvement. But to your point, really, it was the Olympics where I think most of us got to see that females could be professional coaches in our sport. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I remember watching it. I had it recorded on my VHS <laughs> at the time, I think. And uh yeah, I mean, I was fortunate enough to see a woman coaching, and I think that was the first platform. And obviously, it was an inspiring thing to see in the first place, but it kind of opened my mind to the idea that, hey, you know, if if playing doesn't work out for you, there might be an opportunity behind the bench. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so moving along here. So grew up in Nova Scotia, uh, and as you said, you kind of came back to your home province, and you you coached at St. Mary's for, for 14 years, and 2011 rolls around. And in 2011, you had an opportunity to take the head coaching position at Ryerson University, which at the time was a brand new program. So, I mean, a decision like that meant moving your family from Nova Scotia to the heart of the city, Toronto, uh, and shifting from what had become, thanks to you, a well-established program to one that, again, needed to be built from scratch. Could you tell us a bit about what went into that decision for you and your family? And and then second part, maybe share some advice you'd have for other coaches that might be faced with having to make a similar decision around relocating. Well, this could be a, a one hour story for sure. But uh, I think there's just there, there's just so many branches to this story. And and first and foremost, um, I loved my time at St. Mary's. Uh, without a doubt, I met some amazing people and had people that really shaped me in my life, uh, my professional career for sure. But timing is everything as well. And and unfortunately, at that point in time, the whole reason I even ever considered a move to another university was beyond my control, a decision made by my uh, university at the time at St. Mary's that women's hockey was an expendable program and, and they'd made the decision to terminate the program. So you know, as the as the saying goes, one uh, one door closes, a new window of opportunity opens, and I, I feel like that's what the situation was for me in coming to Ryerson. So, through that that announcement and that window of time, I would say a two to four week window of time. You know, I really had to soul search and, and look at um, what really was going on in my mind and my heart. And I think at the end of the day, we want to feel valued in terms of what we're bringing to the table and. At St. Mary's, uh, the story was a success. We were able to save the program, and and I felt very good about that when I did decide to move on to Ryerson in in that uh, everything we had built over that 15-year period was was going to be saved and someone new could come in and build on that. But, you know, I felt like it wasn't the right place for me anymore. I felt like, you know, the value that I thought I was bringing was clearly um, not there in terms of of some of the people involved. You know, I have no doubt that the players and the coaches that I worked with uh, valued me, but it, it just didn't feel like the right place uh, for me. And, and so that was one big part of it. You know, I think the other decision, the other part of the decision for me was we all get motivated by new challenges. And, you know, I, I enjoyed my time at St. Mary's after 15 years. Sometimes, yeah, I think if I looked at it objectively, it probably felt like there was more of going through the motions because I'd been there already. And, and uh, you know, the the edge you get back when it's a new challenge. And, and I was really drawn to that simple fact, the chance to try to build again, just like we had gone through uh, at St. Mary's. Um, and so I wanted to see if I could do it. I think those were probably professionally a couple of the motivating things for me was 
how I felt in the environment I was currently in at St. Mary's and, and, uh, you know, the termination of the program really cut pretty deep for me in terms of what I thought I was actually bringing to the table and what I was, uh, actually being recognized for, um, by the, you know, by my, my employers and my, the senior people. So, uh, you know, it told me it was time for a change and that as soon as I made that decision, it really excited me. And, I'm fortunate that the hockey world is a small one in that uh, a colleague of mine, Stephanie White, was uh, in charge of getting the, the women's hockey program at Ryerson off the ground for the first time. And Stephanie and I had crossed paths many times in the Hockey Canada circles. And, um, you know, she had reached out to offer condolences when our when our program at St. Mary's got canceled, but also opened that window of opportunity to say, if you're interested, there's an opportunity here at Ryerson. Obviously, it's going to be a, a big challenge because we're starting from the ground up. Uh, but I, I like the autonomy of knowing that uh, whatever happened with the program was solely in my hands, and, and that was really motivating. So um, I'm thankful for Stephanie of thinking of me that uh, I was the right person for that opportunity. So I applied. I went through the, the process and and um, was able to be named the first head coach of the varsity program at Ryerson. And it was, you know, it's, it's been a great journey. Uh, we haven't arrived at our destination. And of course, we never do. We're never satisfied. But uh, it's been an amazing time here. Um, there's an Olympic experience folded into that as well. But it's been nine seasons and I've met some incredible people. Um, and yourself being one of them, MJ, you know, I, I think... Um, you know, our time together at Ryerson, I, I wish it could have gone even further. I feel like you've put so much into the success that we've had. And, you know, I always want to share, share those milestones with the people, you know, that, that had the biggest impact. And that was definitely you. Um, having said that, you know, these are the exact things, you know, that, that shape our lives and our experiences. And, um, you know, for me, the challenge of trying to rebuild that program, well, really build it from scratch was, was a huge motivating thing. But there are other factors. And when it comes to the second part of your question around um, advice for others in trying to do that, I really think that the most important thing is that the personal side of things has to work. And, you know, for me, um, with my husband, he actually is from Ontario. Um, both of us are on our second marriages. He's ha he has children from his first marriage, and they were both living in Ontario at the time. So, you know, out of... Uh, uh, out of full full selflessness, he had given up his career to move to Nova Scotia so that I could pursue my ambitions in hockey. And, and when it came time um, to consider where, where Ryerson fit in, it made total sense on the personal side, too, uh, to relocate to Ontario so that we could really unite our entire family in terms of us and, and our kids and, you know, his kids from his first marriage. It, it made total sense. And I think that, you know, that was really a big part of the decision as well is knowing we could do that on the personal side, but also knowing that, uh, you know, I was clear about what this was going to take and he knew it as well, that I was about to dive into something that was going to consume a lot of my time and, and my work life balance would suddenly get weighted towards the work side of it. And, uh, you know, I give my husband so much credit. He's supported me and respected what I've been trying to do every step of the way. And, uh, don't get me wrong, it's not always rainbows and lollipops, but, um, you know, we, we have uh, such a tremendous relationship. And, you know, my advice to anyone thinking about doing this is to consider all of those angles. What is this going to do in terms of our family life? Um, you know, what is the level of support I have from my spouse? And on the professional side, you know, do my values align with the, the, the place I'm about to land in? And uh, or do I align better with where I'm at? And I think those, you know, in broad strokes are some of the things that that I considered and I would advise anyone looking to make such a bold move to consider uh, before they they choose their path. Oh, that is such great advice, Lisa. And obviously coming from lived experience, it doesn't get much better than that. Um, and kind of just to piggyback on that, actually, when it comes to the work life balance piece, I mean, anyone who's worked in coaching has probably heard that term often and plenty, um, especially as a coach, especially in the world of athletics, right? It can be very difficult to balance your time and energy between home and work effectively. It can also feel like there's always something to be done, even if you happen to have a day off. Um, as someone who's been at this now for 22 years, are there any strategies you've adopted yourself kind of to help maintain some sense of healthy balance between commitments to work and family? 
I've certainly gotten it wrong my fair share as well. Um, but I, I think, you know, if I, if I try to capture this in terms of where the pitfalls have been for me and where the successes have been for me, it's, uh, a, again, a recognition between you and your spouse that there is seasonal unbalance. There are going to be points in the year where there is no work-life balance. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, you know, in season, obviously the work carries more weight. And so, you know, I, 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 I think us recognizing that this is just going to be the norm, that, you know, Labor Day doesn't exist for us. And in fact, any weekend in September or October doesn't really exist for us in terms of a family life. Um, but knowing where those breaks are going to be. And I think what uh, what we've done well is is identifying when when are the breaks and knowing that those breaks are coming, I think, really helps um, try to uh, get through the daily grind of feeling like there's always something that needs to be done that that pulls me away. So I mean, my spouse has always been really supportive of me in terms of you know, having me having the flexibility I need to, need to suddenly have a, a meeting with my players in the evening or go watch a recruit or whatever. So, uh, you know, that side of it. But for us, you know, we know our breaks are coming. We I could easily fill the varsity schedule with every single weekend in the fall. Um, but, you know, have learned that these breaks are critical. So, you know, Thanksgiving is one of those breaks. I think for myself and all of the players and the staff, by the time we hit Canadian Thanksgiving, uh, we've gone for five or six weekends in a row where something is happening. And and so I really look forward to Thanksgiving. And I and I know in mid-September that there's a break coming where we all get to step away for three days or four days or whatever it might be. And that next, you know, then you're ready for that next push. And, and Christmas is a break as well. I mean, I, I know for us as coaches, we still have a ton of commitment around recruiting and scouting. But, you know, if the team has two weeks or 18 days off, I think as coaches, you know, we have to expect that we we need a week as well within that time window. We may still have to scout and recruit around that. But, you know, knowing that there's going to be a, a multiple day break where you, you can just shut things off as much as possible. I mean, don't get me wrong. If somebody's calling me in the middle of the night and, the, and there's always those emergency scenarios, but knowing that you're going to press pause and that, you know, yes, there may be something that needs to be done, but it just doesn't need to be done in the next three or four or five days. So I think, um, you know, for us, those breaks and knowing when they're coming have been huge when the grind of the uh, in season is upon us. And the second thing for me is uh, I think I've learned over the years that sleep is critical. And in fact, sleep is a weapon. And mm -hmm. uh, I've also learned that as much as I am a night owl, and I think that, you know, I, I want to stay up and try to accomplish everything. As simple as it sounds, getting to bed and, and choosing to just get up earlier to do those things makes you a lot more efficient and productive. So that, I mean, that's a simple one everyone thinks about. But for me, I've really had to adjust from staying up until 3 a.m. to realizing I'm going to go to bed at midnight and I'm going to get up at five instead of seven. And I'll do just as much in those two hours that I've done uh, than I could have done in the three hours at the end of the day. But, um, you know, the pitfalls for me that I think is important for everyone to recognize is, you know, my physical health has been a yo-yo and it seems to be every time the season changes. So when we get started in, again in mid-August or when the season finishes at the end of March, like those transition times for me seem to be when um, I get myself a little bit uh, askew in terms of my physical health and just trying to sort out my schedule again. When you get in the routine of the season, you know where you can find your moments for your, your exercise or your sleep or, or so on. But every time the season changes, or for me, my environment has changed in terms of, you know, we've moved to different cities. We've moved out of Toronto into a more uh, remote area. But, um, you know, trying to make those adjustments and figuring out uh, how to handle the change in a season or an environment, I think, has been really, really eye-opening for me in, in that uh, you know, I need to expect these things. And because, you know, otherwise, if you're, if you're not staying physically healthy, you're soon not going to be mentally healthy either. And, and I don't mean in any major chronic ways, but just, you know, knowing what helps set you up best. And I've also realized that I need some morning solitude. And whether it was living in Toronto and getting to walk to work was my solitude time or now living outside the city and having a, uh, you know, a train ride in, that morning solitude really helps me organize my thoughts, plan my day, 
um, and just makes me a lot more effective and honestly uh, healthier mentally and physically. So um, if I was to try to wrap it up in a nutshell, it's just recognizing that seasonal unbalance is going to be upon us and knowing that it's important to both you and your spouse know when the breaks are going to be. Um, and then also, yes, you do have to take care of yourself physically and mentally and what's going to work for you and what do you have to be aware of. And for me, it's being ready for those seasonal changes um, and and knowing how important it is to, to find my me time. You know, as an introvert, I need that I need that solitude in the morning to get myself um, at my best so I can I can be my best for the people that are counting on me. Absolutely. I love that term seasonal unbalance. I've never heard it before, but that is so spot on. And I think, I mean, those two points, they qualify for, I think, a lot of people's situations. Like you're absolutely spot on. You have to have an idea of what your schedule look like, looks like. And you have to make sure that that, that downtime or that rest time or that, you know, rejuvenation time is built into the schedule so that it gives you something to look forward to. And you make sure you're not constantly sacrificing that for things, you know, outside of that element, because you're right. If you're not going, then nothing else is. The other element I really like is the sleep. It's so funny you mentioned that because for me, I was on the same boat. Like I've got the two young ones here and I was for a while, both my partner and I, we would finally get the kids to bed. We were exhausted, but then we would stay up, right? It's like, okay, well, let's watch something on Netflix or like, it's our time. Like I finally have my time to do something for me, but it wasn't productive. So about three weeks ago, I decided to go to bed as soon as, as our youngest is down. So I'm like literally in bed eight 30 or nine and I'm up at six every morning. And that time in the morning is like, I cannot live without it now that I have it. But it's making that acknowledgement that, yeah, like it's shifting your schedule, right? To make sure that it works for you because you're right. If it doesn't work for you, it's not going to work for your team or your partner or just your own life and well-being long-term. So that's really good advice. You're right. You're right. You're right, MJ. And, and, you know, you think you want to sneak in a few extra hours at the end of the night, but honestly... You know, that's lost time that you don't get to make up in terms of of sleep and regeneration. And it's just going to negatively affect your performance the next day. And I've tried to push against that for so long. I've always, always prided myself that I'm a night owl. But, you know, it's it's only taken 22 years to realize, yes, you are a night owl, but that also has to have a time and a place. And in season is not the right place. Yeah. Yeah. You know, enjoy your late nights in June and July um, when you have uh, right. more time. So, yeah, definitely. Um, seasonal unbalance is not just uh, in season. It's knowing that, okay, it's the off season. And and do I really need to be at this showcase or, or that event recruiting? Is this really going to shift or make a significant impact on our program? Yes or no. And if the answer is no, then that unbalance has to show up in your family life, you know, in, in terms of that annual cycle as well. So. It's um, I, I really like when you asked the question and you pointed out that it, there's always work to be done. It will always feel like that. I think that's important to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. It's always going to feel like there's something else that I should be doing right now and realizing that that's something else in terms of uh, family time or time with your partner is what needs to be done right now, not this spreadsheet or that phone call or that email to so-and-so for hockey it's um yes there is always something to be done and and realize that the the priority of that something is it's got to be your your family um in those right moments for sure well and I've always appreciated that about you like working with you there were times where I would admire like your ability to kind of say okay like I'm I'm going home or I have this with my son or my husband because I know when I first got into it, especially my time at Ryerson, the beginning, it was just like my mind was always going. Like I felt like there was always something I had to do. And there were times where I needed to just put it down and and step away and and be with family. But I found that very hard. But I found watching Mm -hmm. you and your ability to balance that was a great example for me to follow. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. So the philosophy of coaching has seemed to evolve I would say pretty substantially over the last few decades uh, from when you got involved at the beginning here. So if you were to look at your first few years of coaching back in 1997 and compare them to your most recent couple of years, what are some things that you personally have changed your mind on? Um, You know, I would say 
and and I think a lot of minor hockey coaches experience this as well. That um, I think early on in my career, I was so driven to winning, and yes, winning is obviously the outcome. But I think what I've really learned is that uh, it, you know, if you really want to achieve that winning, at the end of the day, that uh, your your philosophy and your day to day values need to be centered around team culture and and process. And that those are the things that actually lead to the winning that you're that you're chasing. So, um, and really, I guess the best example I could give is, you know, does it really matter if you're winning a tournament in September or October, or this exhibition game, or or even like you know some early regular season games, at the cost of developing team culture, and you know establishing your team values, whatever they may be. But you know, obviously, accountability is usually a big one, and you know, making sure that you're honoring those values that you believe your team needs to possess and that your team has identified as important to you. I think um, being able to bring those to life and keeping them at the center of attention versus the outcome of every single game, um, I think that's really something that's uh, helped shift uh, in, in me as a coach. And I also think that a lot of the credit to any success that, that we've had in building programs that are consistently doing well year after year, a lot of the credit goes to that in focusing on the process and making sure that the team culture is what you believe in. Because at some point when adversity strikes, this is what you need to lean on. And if it hasn't been established, you know, and if if your team doesn't have that trust or those communication skills or that accountability or the strong leadership, then you may fail in those, those, those times of adversity. And, you know, winning a championship is not easy and uh, these need to be key ingredients every step of the way. So, um, you know, for me, I think that's been a big part of it is, is just realizing that it's not about every single win. It's more about what are we doing now that's going to lead us to our actual outcome goal, which is, is, you know, whatever it is, qualifying for playoffs for the first time or winning, winning a playoff round or getting to nationals. Um, you know, we always talk about those as our goals, but, uh, you know, we set those at the beginning of the season, but then we set them aside and we focus on the process and, and the steps that it, that we need to take. And a lot of times the process is, is driven by the values of the team and what are they? So, um, I think for me, that's definitely been a shift in my philosophy is, is less about outcomes and a lot more in, in making sure your process is solid and the values of your team are solid. And those are the things that have led to what I believe some really good, consistent years of growth with our program. And, um, you know, I'm not sure where we would be had we stayed on that pathway of just trying to win the next game. I think we probably would have been um, all over the map and, and maybe haven't been able to build what we've built so far. Um, and we haven't won anything yet. Don't get me wrong, but we've certainly, you know, we've certainly had the growth that we've needed to have every step of the way so that uh, we're putting ourselves in the best position to do that. So I think, uh, you know, philosophy wise, that's probably been the biggest thing. Um, I also think the players are different now. They're definitely more skilled. They're stronger. They're faster. Um, but, I, you know, I also think that my coaching philosophy has to evolve along with the, the type of um, teenagers and young adults that we're coaching. So um, I think, you know, the players that uh, the student athletes, I should say, that are coming to us on our university teams are, are wired much differently than, than the athletes that I had in the, the late 90s and the early 2000s. I mean, um, I'm a parent now and I, I have a kid in competitive hockey and, uh, you know, I see me doing some of the things that, that parents of, of the student athletes I coach are doing. Like we're literally clearing the path for our kids you know, we're, we're getting them the, the strength and conditioning they need. We're getting them this. We're setting their schedule. We've got them in these sessions. You know, we are literally providing everything they need to be successful. And they haven't necessarily struggled the way we may have struggled, you know, my, you know, and whether it was having the finances to even have our kids in hockey. You know, I know for me as a kid, I had uh, a twin sister and two older brothers. And you know, I, you know, I would say, well, how come I don't get to play AAA hockey? And, you know, basically while well, your brother does. So, you know, we, there's just been different challenges that we may have faced along the way that, um, that some of, some of our student athletes haven't faced. So just recognizing as well, that it's a different, it's a different, uh, human that's in front of us now and trying to evolve and, and, uh, trying to grow their resilience muscles and still maintain their confidence, uh, and also, 
you know, try to help them develop their own autonomy and, and understand that they're captaining their own ships. And, you know, what we're, we're not here to say you need to do this and you need to do that. Um, I think that's a big shift because most of, most of the players that we're seeing now have had, because hockey, you know, let's face it, has become somewhat of an elitist sport. And so, you know, there's been a lot of financial investment into players by the time they arrive at the university level. And sometimes we have to go back and, you know, and try to revisit what they should be doing in terms of, you know, knowing, you know, how to take care of themselves every day and, and how to build out their own development plan. And of course, we're here to support and identify and evaluate and all those things, but, you know, allowing our players to feel some ownership that there's a lot of things that they need to be accountable for um, to reach their full potential. So, I think, you know, I think the player we're coaching has evolved. And also I, I know in my own mindset, I've definitely gotten away from focusing on, on the end result of every, each and every game and, and been more heavily focused on team culture and, and good process and making sure that um, we, we live to our values on a day-to-day basis. There's so much good insight there. And it's so true. I think so many coaches, when they get started out, are focused on winning right? Like if I'm a good coach, my team will win. And if I'm not good, my team doesn't. And the challenge with that is it's, it's that external piece, right? Like we're, we're judging our own performance based on external measures versus that shift you talk about where now you're focused on process and culture and what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. Those are things you have control over. And that's where the true lasting motivation resides, right? To kind of push you to, to the goals you have collectively. And it's funny because that kind of ties in with the kids, like you're saying. I mean, I know we've had many conversations over the years about, you know, the accountability piece or the resilience piece or, you know, just the independent motivation. But I think sometimes kids struggle so now to find that intrinsic motivation themselves, like why they're doing things. Because like you said, things are kind of already laid out for them and they have a path to follow, but they're not put in a situation where they have to kind of, you know, battle to get their head above water and experience how good that feels to kind of accomplish that for themselves. And it's trying to create those opportunities for them to connect with why things matter to them internally, aside from Mm -hmm. what anyone else is saying, and then giving them opportunities to really fight for it so that they grow to appreciate it more and more. Exactly. And I think that that's, that's not always easy when you first get into your, into your coaching career. And I guess just saying in a, in a different way, knowing the difference between being a winning coach and a successful coach. And lots of times you're successful without ha- having ever won. I think, you know, when I first started at Ryerson, you know, our first season, we were one twenty-one and one. And uh, I felt like it was one of our most successful years because of the growth that we had as a team. And it didn't show up in the win loss column, but um, you know, the growth that we saw within our players in every aspect, but, but mainly in intangible ways, just in terms of, you know, leadership and self-confidence and, and knowing the, believing in the process and those sorts of things. Like, um, I think understanding that there, there can be a difference between being a successful coach and being a winning coach. And, uh, you know, in my own opinion, being a successful coach is going to set you up for a whole lot more winning than just simply focused on being a winning coach. Yeah, because I mean, you know what, at the end of the day, we don't necessarily control the winning piece, right? Like we don't control all of the factors exactly. that go into that. So it's a, a dangerous place to to put all your marbles. <laughs> you got to try to balance it yeah, out exactly. if you can. But uh, yeah, uh, just shift gears a little bit here. Obviously, it's a major topic these days, COVID. I mean, it's certainly changed the way that coaches interact with their clients and in athletics in, in particular, it's created a dramatic shift for the foreseeable future. Uh, seasons have been canceled. I believe recently the OUA season has been canceled as well. Um, attendance and practices has been limited. The opportunity to have an entire team together in person is no longer an option. Just wondering if you could share some of the challenges you're facing currently with COVID and maybe some of the strategies you're adopting to try to keep yourself engaged and keep yourself connected with the players? Well, yeah, I mean, 22 years and you think that you've probably seen your fair share and then COVID arrives and it's a, it's a completely new environment for everyone. Yeah. And, you know, to your point, I think one of our biggest challenges ha- has been that ability to be together, like physically be together because 
we're playing a team sport, you know, and uh, our strength is in our team unity and not being able to come together. It's funny how your perspective changes, you know, in past seasons, sometimes it feels like a grind to come to the rink every day and have to do team dry land and workouts and meetings and practices. And, and suddenly when it's all taken away, you realize the other thing that's been taken away is that connection with your teammates and, and us as a coaching staff with our players. So I think that's been a huge challenge for us. Um, I think one of the other things that we've uncovered is, is where everyone is on the spectrum in terms of how they're coping with COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for some, some of our players, they don't want to go anywhere near downtown Toronto because they are very scared of contracting it and sharing it with a loved one or, or someone in their in their close circle that, you know, may have a compromised immunity. And, and then also we have other players who just need to have that connection and they would move the earth to be able to get on the ice three days a week. So I think that's been something else we've uncovered is is just the broad spectrum uh, in front of us in terms of trying to meet all of our players where they need us most. And, uh, you know, it goes without saying that safety first, I mean, for example, we are. We have taken a two-week pause here, coming out of Thanksgiving. I know a lot of players so um, that did come back to the city were looking forward to spending time with their back home with their families. And so, um, just out of respect of everyone's safety, we have paused for two weeks. And um, in the meantime, obviously, yes, the OUA has made the announcement to cancel the regular season and playoffs, and and U Sport as a result has had to cancel those national championships. So. You know the two-week pause uh, has worked well too, so that everyone can just let let the dust settle a bit and and really try to um, get get a grip on where our minds are. Um, I can say that um, I have felt busier than ever because of the uh, you know it's it's not already built in that you're going to connect with everybody every day at practice or dry land or or the next day. So you know trying to have those small group meetings and those one-on-ones with players uh, and so on. I mean, trying to have a team zoom call with 30 people on the call and think that you're going to come, come out with any sense of t- yeah. team camaraderie is really tough yeah. because, you know, mm-hmm. 29 people are on mute and the other one's doing all the talking. So um, I think those have been our challenges is just, uh, and I, I've realized like it's actually busier now <laughs> on a day-to-day basis uh, because we don't get to come together every day, but you know, our strategy has been, first of all, providing, trying to meet everybody wherever they need us to meet them. So um, what we've tried to do is uh, those that wanted to come back on campus or back to their apartments in the GTA to provide them with whatever normalcy we could. So, you know, they've had the opportunity to train at the MAC. Well, obviously, we're in a 28-day restriction period here right now, but up until the latest uh, um, pullback to phase two, they, they had the opportunity to train every day at the MAC. Um, and still get on the ice together, even if it is just with five or six or seven players. Um, so, and there's been other players that that started out attending and decided they just didn't feel comfortable with the, the threat of COVID around, and you know, giving them the space to pull back the way they've they feel like they've needed to. Um, so, you know, for us, we're just trying to meet everybody where they need us. Um, we've also kind of changed the structure in our team in terms of. We've expanded our leadership group to seven players and divided uh, everyone up into smaller groups. So, you know, you have two or three other people that uh, as a leader, you're staying connected with on not necessarily a daily basis, but, you know, whether it's a group chat or uh, those types of touch points, I think that's been huge. Um, Another big part of our strategy, again, is just to spend time talking about our team values and what it looks like to try to live them under these new circumstances. Okay. You know, we found out last week, we no longer have a meaningful game before probably September of 2021. So, you know, how important is accountability? How important is communication, you know, and how does it fit in our lives now that, um, you know, we're not getting ready for our next uh, weekend of uh, road trip to Nipissing and Laurentian. So, you know, we've tried to spend a lot of time figuring out, how our team culture fits into this new scenario for us. So, and, you know, I think our other strategy as coaches is just making sure that every player feels heard uh, and valued regardless of their circumstances. And so, 
you know, we have player, we have, we have a player that lives in South Korea, who's got a 13 hour time zone change that we try and stay connected with. And we have players in British Columbia, we have players in Quebec, in uh, the province of Quebec. So just making sure that they all feel heard, whether it's connecting with their, their group leader or us as coaches, um, making sure that has been our focus as a coaching staff is, is making sure that we do stay connected now that it's it's not already dialed in for us that we meet every day for practice. So those have been some of the challenges. Um, those have been some of the awakenings that we've had in terms of what life with COVID actually means for a competitive team um, and some of the strategies that we've, we've tried to come up with to deal with this. And, you know, with this announcement last week, we feel like we've got a lot of work ahead of us again to try to, you know, try to maximize and find the silver lining in this situation. And um, there's just so many different complicated pieces to it in terms of seniors graduating. You know, I think the easy mm-hmm. decision, I shouldn't say easy for some of them, you know, they're deciding to come back or not, but even the trickle down effect of our fourth years, are they still going to graduate next year and still have a year of eligibility or mm-hmm. are they also going to play for a sixth year? So I think, um, no eligibility this year has just uh, also created a brand new way for us as a coaching staff in terms of, um, you know, our, our recruiting process and our, where are we with our, our team and um, in our recruiting cycle. And, you know, at the moment we feel like we're ready to chase for an OUA banner and a national championship, but has that shifted because of COVID canceling our season this year? And so helping our players try to make the best decision for them in terms of, well, do I stay for a sixth year? Do I do a master's? What do I do? So, um, you know, I think it's just thrown a whole lot more gray into our lives. And um, I think um, that is very emotionally draining to try to sort through it all. And I know that's the stage our players are in right now. This past week has definitely, um, I don't think it was an unexpected decision, but it's now real. It's now our reality. Mm-hmm. And so um, I know our, our, you know, our players are, sorting through everything all over again there was always the what if but now it's now it's for sure that we don't have a season so um you know they have a lot of stress on their plates in terms of school and do I do I sublet my apartment do I come back do I get a job and so um I think there's been many many challenges and you know, I always remind the players that challenges are what make us better. So yes, it's uh, being in the midst of the challenges is, is really difficult and, and really draining. And uh, it's also helping us grow and probably more so than we would have grown had this not occurred. So um, I think always trying to stay uh, focused on the benefits of the situation has, has helped us as, uh, as much as anything. Yeah. And you know what? Meet them where they are. I love that you use that phrase and, and you're right. Like it didn't even really dawn on me the idea of every player being in a different place on that spectrum in terms of their relationship with COVID, their concerns, their worries, their level of comfort. Uh, it makes sense that your work has picked up because it's kind of, you've transitioned from opportunities to coach a team to kind of a responsibility to provide coaching to all of these people on an individual level to a certain extent. And, uh, Mm-hmm. that can that can certainly take a lot of your time and energy as well so hopefully you're making sure you continue to schedule time for yourself and get to bed early and <laughs> take care of all those things um mm-hmm. you know and it's interesting because even going back to what you said about what you changed your mind on the most like is this not the perfect opportunity to try to teach kids to keep their energy and focus on what's in their control You know, there is so much going on right now in their lives that they don't have control over because grand scheme, you know, we don't know when things will be opened up again, really. So an opportunity to keep people Mm -hmm. in that progress, not perfection mind state and make sure that they're worrying about what they can control and what they can change is it's going to be really impactful for them long term away from the rink, even more than inside of it. I agree 100 percent. Yeah. Okay, so shifting gears again here, what is one of the greatest lessons you've learned in your coaching journey that has positively impacted your life outside of the rink? I've thought about this one a lot, and I, I think most the most recent experiences that I've had in this past, I'd say, 12 months has really taught me a lot. And what I'm talking about is the social injustice 
um, that's in f- front and center for us now, um, whether it's whether it's racism or discrimination of uh, indigenous people, you know, or the LGBTQ, the great movements that are going on right now ha- has really stimulated some great conversations within within our team. And and what I mean by that is one of the greatest lessons for me right now has has been realizing the unique path that every player has taken to arrive where they are with us today and and realizing that their experiences are so vastly different and um you know i i think whether it's a black person playing hockey with it is a very white sport or you know someone coming out and and realizing who they are as a person and that they're now ready to live it all of these things like you know for me i i think one of the biggest lessons i've i've learned is how important it is to recognize each person's journey before they arrived on our doorstep at Ryerson and, um, and how that's really influenced, you know, my life outside of the rink. I'm also a mom and a wife and a sister. And what am I doing in my personal life to help those players that are on my team that have faced these inequalities? And it's not okay just to say that I'm not racist or I'm not whatever, homophobic. It's not good enough to say that I'm not one of these things. Mm-hmm. My players have taught me that they deserve a lot more. And I have to be anti-racist and I can't allow someone to speak negatively about an Indigenous person or allow some of these derogatory words that are used. I don't want to say them uh, right now on the podcast, you know, towards people who are who are gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender. I mean, you know, for me, I, I think just realizing what some of my athletes have journeyed through to arrive on my doorstep and that have I been doing enough to service them and what level of support do they actually feel from me and from our team and from our athletics department, you know, and I think it's been a real eye opener in these past 12 months with all of the social injustice that's, you know, that that is part of our, our society today and realizing as that privileged person, really, are you doing enough? You really aren't. And I just really think that my players deserve better. I think my kids deserve better. I think my spouse deserves more and so on down the line. And so whether it's me educating others in my circle about some of the harmful things or views that they've had, or, you know, even shedding light on the experiences that someone that's in this minority situation is experiencing. So I think that's been one of the greatest lessons is just realizing my own privilege. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that maybe, you know, there's been so many other people that have had so many different experiences than me. It's not just black and white that this person should be ready to show up for practice when, you know, they may have been completely traumatized by George Floyd's death. And really, should I just expect them to show up at practice the next day? Like, mm-hmm. how how is that, you know, really, how am I respecting them as a human first and foremost? And so, you know, I think that's just been one of my greatest lessons is, is there's just so many perspectives uh, and experiences that everyone on our, our team has. And I need to be so much more aware of how their lives are affected on a day-to-day basis in terms of what's happening in society. And what am I doing to show them my support? And and I think it's been a, a, a huge reality check for me to realize that I'm not doing nearly enough. Wow. I couldn't agree more. And it it is, right? It's crazy, everything that's gone on, especially in the last 12 months. But I love your statement of, you know, everyone that comes into the door has a completely different life story, right? Completely different perspective. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, I mean, your perceptions, your reality, and even just having the awareness to realize that everyone's perception is different, right? Everyone's reality is different from yours and and being open to understanding the situations, the unique circumstances of other people. There's a lot of power in that, just like there can be a lot of harm in not taking the time to do that. So that is, that's really helpful insight. Okay. You want to do one more here? You have time? Sure. Yeah. I've got, hey, it's COVID. Yeah, I know. What do I got going on? <laughs> okay, so I'll I'll give you a choice. So there's the one about a coach or mentor that's had a lasting impact on your life or a story about a particular athlete that's had an impact on your life. I'd like to talk about the impact that a particular person uh, or mentor has had on, on me and, and it's really had a lasting impact. And that person is Dr. David Murphy. And so at one point in my career at St. Mary's University, Dave Murphy was my athletic director, but I had had others uh, before him. I had a couple of other 
people in that position that I, I had such tremendous respect for. And I definitely had that same level of respect for Dr. Murphy all the way through. You know, he was supporting me when my Hockey Canada career was really getting off the ground and I was starting to, to be um, at world championships at the senior level and so on. And he also was instrumental in the women's hockey program at St. Mary's above and beyond what I ever knew. And, you know, I strongly believe that all you have is your integrity and your integrity can be challenged so many times in terms of the decisions that you make. And are you actually staying true to your, to your beliefs and values under the most arduous scenarios? And what I came to learn about Dr. Murphy was, as I had mentioned earlier in our conversation today, MJ, at one point, the women's hockey uh, program at St. Mary's was terminated. And when that happened, that was about two years after Dr. Murphy had retired and there was a new athletic director in this position. And at that point in time, there was a, a financial burden and basically women's hockey was terminated for whatever reason. I guess it was the most expensive female sport at the school. But what I came to learn after the fact is that the senior admin at, at St. Mary's University had asked Dr. Murphy countless times before then to make this move. Uh, it would have been easy to do that. You know, women's hockey was the most expensive female sport, but we also had men's hockey and we also had football. And I should mention that Dr. Murphy was a standout athlete at St. Mary's University when he was a student and he was the quarterback of the football team and he played, uh, sorry, he didn't play hockey, he played basketball, but so his pride in St. Mary's and the football program and all the varsity athletics was huge. And, you know, he had been pushed countless times, I've come to understand, to terminate women's hockey. And he always said, his response was always, I will cancel a program, but if I'm going to cancel any program, it's going to be football. I'm not canceling women's hockey. It, that's, that's not fair. And I never knew that, you know, and he never told me that. And now that I'm aware of this, and I should say he never told me, he did tell me that. Just in the last couple of years, I actually got inducted into the Hall of Fame at St. Mary's University last year, and this is a conversation that he had with me. And, and I come to realize the integrity that he operated with during that time that he saw me every day, and I was completely unaware of the pressure that he was getting. Um, and he never, he never sent that burden onto my shoulders at all. It was never, hey, you got to win or I'm going to have to do this. You really measure a person by what they do when no one's looking for me to learn this about him and the integrity that he's acted with. He could have made that easy decision, but it went against his values and his beliefs and he stood by it. And, you know, for me, that really, that really stands out. And it reminds me in my toughest moments, like this is all you have is your integrity. So what are you going to do in this moment? And I have felt very challenged over the years and probably even more so in today's day and age, you know, with some of the some of the things that are, are going on, I think that uh, sports has become a business in, in many ways, unfortunately, whether it's minor hockey or university hockey, it's it's become such a business. And, you know, sometimes decisions that are being made are not ethical. And, you know, I'll never forget the impact that Dr. Murphy made on me when I discovered exactly what level of integrity he showed day in and day out. And, you know, it reminds me that uh, I have to be responsible to live to my values on a day-to-day -day basis because at the end of the day, that's what defines you and that's how you're remembered. So, you know, I just, um, if I, there was anyone that I was going to, to point out in terms of the lasting impact that they've had on me, Dr. Murphy is at the top of that list. Wow. It's a great story. Okay. I've got one more for you. It's the last one. I promise. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So if you could go back in time and tell your, I want to say 22 year old self, when you just got started on your coaching okay, journey, yeah. uh, if you could tell 22-year-old mm -hmm. Lisa one thing, what would it be? Oh, boy. Um, I think, uh, you know, I'm probably going to reiterate some of the things that, that we've talked about already in our conversation. But um, for me, something that I haven't said that I think is really important that it, I wish I knew back then is find an experienced mentor. I think in this day and age and coaching in this day and age, and especially being a female coach, in a male-dominated sport, um, and it doesn't even mean if it's hockey, I think the importance of having an experienced mentor is vital because there are not a lot of second chances these days. I think I was fortunate to fly under the radar screen when I was making lots of mistakes in my coaching career. Um, you know, we were just, uh, you know, honestly a bump on the side of the road at St. Mary's when I first got started. Nobody was paying attention, and, you know, when I didn't have an experienced mentor to to guide me through. 
I was doing things on the fly. I'd never coached before. And I know I made a lot of mistakes, um, but fortunately nobody was really watching. And in this day and age, people are watching and university sports, um, as I had mentioned, it is a big business and you do need experience. And if you don't have it, and most of us don't when we're starting out in our coaching career, having a mentor, whoever it is, you know, whether they're officially on your staff or just someone that you really trust and, you know, they don't even necessarily have to be a coach, but someone who has some solid experience that can guide you through some, some really troubling times is key because I think, you know, especially being a female and we've seen it in U sport in some different programs out there across the country at the university level. I, you know, I think that there's uh there's more and more examples of, of female coaches being brought to task on how they've run their programs and whether it's justified or not is not my business to weigh into, but, you know, I do know it's so important to have that experienced mentor that you can just talk things through with and get some some guidance before you make uh, any kind of major mistake or major decision even, because there are not a lot of second chances out there in terms of being a professional coach, uh, and especially being a female professional coach. I mean, it's it's not that easy to find a second opportunity if you get it wrong the first time, and um, whether you've justly or unjustly got it wrong, it's really hard to to change the perception that uh, that might follow you. So I think that's that's important. And at the end of the day, you know, if uh, if that experienced mentor is not around, really take the time to be honest with yourself in terms of what are your values. You know, if they are, I'm sure they're going to circle around trust. They're going to circle around accountability, um, some integrity, some keywords like this. You know, I, I think what I would need to tell myself starting off when I was uh, so young is investing in that process and really knowing what you believe in because if you always stick to doing what you believe in most often than not you'll make the right decision or if you make the wrong one you can at least live with it knowing that you tried to do the right thing so I think those would be probably the two key things that if I could go back and do it all over again I would have found a mentor that probably could have got me through a lot of the hurdles that I I had to face myself uh, because I didn't exactly have a mentor in the game and I don't think I really invested in knowing what my actual values are, you know, until I'd say the last six to eight years of my coaching career. And, and uh, really, since I've been at Ryerson, I've really, you know, tried to, to hone in on, okay, well, what, you know, what do I really believe in? Because there's some big decisions to make. And, you know, I need to feel like I've made the right one. And I, I do believe if you act with the right intentions and make decisions on what you believe is right, then you'll land on on solid ground, or you'll at least be able to live with the decision you've made without any regrets. That's such good advice, such good advice. And, you know, it's interesting with the experienced mentor piece, like you said, I think it's also people need to appreciate the fact that now we do have mentors in place. Like me personally, I so enjoyed our four years together. I felt so fortunate that, you know, I got to go to work and work with you every day, someone who has been in the game for so long. Um, and I feel like it totally expedited my own development. Um, not only just having you around, but the opportunities you created for me, you know, and your willingness to kind of let go of the reins and, and let me fall forward on occasion with certain things. Um, like I, I felt like I grew so much in our time together and, you provided me with the advice and, you know, the action that I needed to see to continue to grow in the right direction, both you and Ken. Um, I felt really fortunate to have time working with you. And, and that's great advice, especially for younger women who are looking to get into the game. There are great mentors out there like yourself and the value that you can bring to their own growth and development is immeasurable. And the piece on values as well, like whether coaching or not, that is, that's such a huge part of it. And it's not only knowing your values, but it's having an understanding of what those look like, right? How can I make my, my values actionable on a regular basis to ensure that I'm kind of walking my talk uh, day in, day out? And, and that's definitely something exactly. that you have under your belt very well now. <laughs> but yeah, you know what? I'm just really, really grateful you took the time to chat today. Anything else? I really enjoyed it as well. You know, for sure. I think, um, thanks for the opportunity, MJ. I mean, this was a little bit more of a formal setting, but I really enjoyed the conversation. And I think an opportunity like this always helps me circle back and reflect on on what I've learned and, and what, what I've done right and wrong over the years. So, you know, I appreciate you giving me the platform to do my own reflection. And I've I've definitely enjoyed our conversation. 
I think one of the points I, I meant to make earlier when we were talking about work-life balance that I, I wanted to mention was, as I, I think I said it at some point along the way, this is my second marriage. And I think where I went wrong the first time was, you know, I, I didn't share my my work with my spouse. You know, our spouses want what's best for us and they really care about us. And, you know, I think for me, I, I didn't share enough, whether it was the emotion and the um, you know, the ups and whether it's the ups or the downs, like just, just sharing that with my spouse and, and letting them know how I'm feeling and why I'm feeling this way with my team. I think that really helped, um, you know, for Bill to be connected in, in me and my coaching career more. And, you know, I still remember when our, our son was a kid, like he was only a toddler and he was on the ice at St. Mary's before my players would come on and, and then they'd step on the ice and, he'd just be in awe of them. And, you know, it was remarkable. Like my son knew every player's name, their position, what number they wore. Uh, he had his favorite players. My husband knew all, you know, all of the kids and all of their parents and just remembering how much our spouses care about us and how important it is to, to let them into our world a little bit. And, you know, not just like, Hey, I'll find time for you later. It's, you know, even when I'm at home, I want to share my day and I want to share the experiences that I had. So I know my spouse cares about me and I also know that he cares about the people that I work with on a daily basis. So um, I think part of that work-life balance was obviously some of the key points they made around the breaks and so on. But I think the other most important part of it is, is letting our, letting our partners in because they're worried about us. And, you know, I think that's been an important thing that I, I learned the hard way, but I got right this time. And now we get to all enjoy it. And I still remember that uh, phone call I got, from Hockey Canada to say that uh, they've selected me to the coaching staff at the Olympics and calling home. I was at work when I got the call and I called home and my son was only seven years old at the time, but he knew that we were waiting to hear. And so when I called, he's, I can still remember him saying, hello. And I said, hello. And he said, mom, did you get the call? I said, yeah, I got the call. He said, we're going to the Olympics. I said, yeah, we're going to the Olympics. And oh my God, like it, it brings tears to my eyes today that I could hear him drop the phone and run down the hallway screaming to, oh. to his dad, dad, we're going to the Olympics. We're going to the Olympics. And just how excited he was that, that I got that opportunity. So I think that was something I really wanted to take time to, to circle back to with you, MJ, is just the importance of sharing, sharing everything with your family because they really do care about you and uh, they want in. So letting them in, I think is critical because uh, it just means so much for all of you. Absolutely. That's so, that's so true. Wow. I can picture little Willie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's amazing. Yeah. And boy, what a time he had at the Olympics. Oh gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Like that experience? I would love to hear like just, you know, that game, like winning. Right. The craziness that was fixed for you guys. Oh yeah, you know, and uh, a lot of my coaching colleagues that have, that had had the honor of going to the Olympics before I did in in 2014, I talked about how challenging it is and the centralization process, and it really was, but not in ways that I thought. Like you know, you're used to the demanding schedule and so on, but it's it's just the emotion and stress of it all. And you know, my family honestly had to pull me through. They they're the ones that sacrificed the most because. You know, you go on to something more exciting and you're not more exciting, but also exciting in your life, I should say. Yeah. And they're still at home. And the only difference for them is that you are not there. And so, you know, sharing that with them and, you know, thankful to Hockey Canada for providing some assistance that our families could be there with us at the Olympics. So in terms of that final game, all that had gone into it, like I just cannot capture the amount of emotion and physical and mental work and grind that goes into preparing for the Olympics. Like I just can't capture it, but you know, getting to that final game to kind of set the stage, we had already won the gold medal three times in a row at the last three Olympics, but we had not won a world championship in years. We were trying to chase a fourth one and our head coach had stepped down about six weeks before we actually left for the Olympics. There was a brand new head coach in place he made major changes. He Haley Wickenizer had been the captain of our team for years and he took the C off her jersey and put it on Carolyn Willett's jersey and you know, just the whirlwind of everything that was going on. And then now we have to go to the Olympics and actually perform. And uh it's like, oh my God, like how? <laughs> but once we got in that Olympic bubble, you know, it really did feel like everything else in our lives was standing still. 
and we go on our journey and we get to the gold medal game against the U.S. And now for pretty much all of us, our friends and families are there. We still don't really get to see them like, you, you know, maybe an hour a day where you could meet up at the Ca- uh, Canada Olympic House to see them. But they weren't allowed in at our practices. They weren't allowed in the Athletes Village. So they're still very much removed. And But you know they're there in the stands watching the games. And that final game, um, the U.S. was playing so well. They had a 2 two nothing lead. It felt like we could not find an inch of ice anywhere and nothing was going our way. And we were down to the final five minutes of the game. And you're still thinking like, God, there's got to be a way. We got to find a way. We need a bounce. And that's literally what happened was Brienne. Actually, Megan Mickelson made a bank pass in the neutral zone that was a little bit lucky that landed on Brienne Jenner's stick. She carries it into the offensive zone and shoots it and it deflects off a stick and then a you know, the defenseman's, it deflects twice before it goes in the back of the net. Like, how fluky can you get? And that that's yeah. the first goal, and there's like three minutes left in the game. So now we're only down by a goal, and we pull our goalie. And I, I totally forgot about this, but, you know, the U.S. iced the puck, and it hits the post. Oh, yeah. It doesn't go in the net. If it goes <laughs> in the net, it's over. It's a two-goal lead again. It hits the post and bounces mm. out. And then, you know, we obviously, uh, we continue on and Mary Philippe, again, a really lucky bounce. I can still picture it in my mind. Johnston tries to make a, throw the puck on net from below the goal line and their goalie redirects the puck out into the slot right on Poulin's stick. And of course she makes no mistake and ties the game. And then we go on to win it in overtime and so many things happened in terms of penalties and power plays and you know, we thought there should have been a penalty shot on Wickenheiser being hauled down. But when you finally, when we finally won the game, obviously we're thrilled and everyone's jumping over the boards. I was so excited to celebrate with, you know, the coaching staff and the players on the ice. And then eventually, like 45 minutes later, finally, my husband and my son were able to make their way down close to the ice surface. Mm-hmm. And up until that point, you know, I'm just jumping for joy and I'm so excited. Yeah. And then I, it's funny, you know, you see your family and all of the emotion just starts pouring out. You know, oh, it's yeah. funny. I've never cried so much because I was so happy. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's just so moving. And my son was crying and my husband was crying and we're all crying and we just won the Olympic gold medal. And it's like, what are we crying for? But it was just such a, yeah. <laughs> you know, such an emotional relief. So what we refer to as tears of joy. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, it's the the medal is just the symbol. At the end of the day, it's mm-hmm. not the medal that you're chasing. It's what the medal signifies. And it's it's everything that you went through to get that darn thing. So, you know, when you look at it, you're not just looking at the fact, oh, my God, I got an Olympic gold medal. It's it's every story and moment that's gone into to getting that. And so, yeah. you know, it's just, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it's nice to have that medal because of what it symbolizes, not just the fact that you've got the gold medal. It's it's what the gold medal means to you, to your family, to everyone you shared it with. So amazing. And now you got me crying. Jeez. From a, a little, from, <laughs> from a little girl from Nova Scotia to an Olympic gold medalist. It's pretty, uh, right. pretty awesome journey, I'd say. Definitely didn't see it coming back when I was uh, yeah. studying athletic therapy and volunteering to coach a hockey team. That's awesome. Crazy journey. Yeah. Well, <laughs> fate took you where you're supposed to go. Exactly. So here we exactly. are. All right, coach. Well, thank you so much again. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Yeah. It was awesome catching up Seriously. in general. And uh, we should probably do it more often. <laughs> exactly.